Thanks for joining us today at Launch Point Church in Lebanon, Tennessee. We believe the Bible is the written word of God without error and useful for every part of our lives. We believe that through learning and teaching of the word, others might come to know God, find freedom, discover their purpose, and make a difference. Thanks again and enjoy today's message from Pastor Jim Kubik. We're finishing our Easter series today. Uh, and we've been talking, the Easter series that we've been discussing is titled The Reason. And in this series, we've, we've, this will be the third lesson. In the first lesson, we're trying to answer the question, why did Jesus come? Why? What was the reason that he did what he did? And the reason is, there's actually several reasons. The first reason we discussed last Sunday was that he came to Jerusalem. He came to earth, as it were, because he has mercy for us, because he saw us in our helpless condition and was provoked to do something about our helpless condition. And he extended mercy to us in the form of grace, of merit that we don't deserve. And so the reason he came to the world, to Jerusalem, is so that he can demonstrate his mercy to us. Good Friday, if you weren't here, you weren't able to listen to our Good Friday service, we talked about the reason is love, that he died, that he sacrificed, that he suffered, that he did everything that he did, endured everything that he endured for one reason, because he loves us so much that he wants to spend eternity with us. And today I want to talk to you about the third and final reason Jesus came. And that reason, life, is that reason. Jesus came first to extend mercy in the form of grace to us because he loved us so that ultimately we might have eternal life with him. And so I'm going to, I'm going to talk today, I'm going to speak today out of John chapter 10, verse 10, if you want to go ahead and turn there in your Bible. The teaching itself is going to come from verse 10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy I came that you may have life and have it abundantly. But I can't just jump into that verse and start teaching that verse, although I guess I could. It would be, it would be easy enough to do it. I don't think I should. I want to start today with verse 9. In verse 9, we see Jesus say this, the verse preceding this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. He says, I am the door. He says, I am the door. He, said, he doesn't say I'm one of many doors or I am one of many paths that lead to heaven or to the Father. He said, I am the door. There's no other way to God but through Christ Jesus. So if we're going to have the life that the Word of God promises us, both abundantly and eternal, there's only one way to achieve that, and that is through Christ Jesus. Their stipulation is that we must enter through him. There's no person, no doctrine, no ideology, no false religion, nothing that can put us in the same place in eternity with God that Jesus and the sacrifice and our acceptance of that sacrifice can put us. Only Jesus. We see this in a second place in John 14, 6. In another I am statement, Jesus says, I am the way the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. You see, I want to set this foundation with you today because I, I need you to understand that the reason He came is to offer you this. But if you're not willing to accept Him for who He is, 
then you don't have access or right to this. You don't have access or right to the eternal life that he's promised us. And people say that's, that's harsh and that's condemning and it's a narrow view. Well, let me tell you, it, it may be harsh and it may be condemning, but let me tell you, the Word of God says that we're under judgment already. Jesus Christ came so that we wouldn't be condemned. And it's not me saying it to you, it's the Word of God. If you have a problem with what I'm telling you, that Jesus is the only way, then what you have a problem with is the Word of God. And I hate to tell you this, but the Word of God, I don't hate to tell you this, I love to tell you this, the Word of God is the truth. And the Word of God, as the truth, isn't subjective, it's objective. Which means it doesn't matter what you think about it, it doesn't matter how you feel about it, it doesn't matter what it causes you to think, only that it's the truth. And so we have to take it for what it is. If I'm going to accept the blessing, then I have to understand the truth. And the truth is, according to this verse, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. And we'll go in and out and find pasture. This is, this is very simply to state before we get started, we are saved by faith alone and Christ alone. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith. And that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. Grace extended through faith because of the work of Jesus, not ours, is how we have access to the promise of life. And that's what I want to talk to you about today. The promise that comes because the truth is Jesus is the way. And the promise is the reason that life eternal is available to us. Life abundantly is available to us. And so I'm going to read verse 10, 10 again. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. I want to make a couple of points here. The first one I want to make, and I recommend that you write these down, maybe take some notes so that you can study them later. Point one, the reason he came was to snatch death from the enemy. The first part of this verse says the thief came only to steal and kill and destroy. Throughout the scripture, we find that the truth is the enemy is a thief. If you'll look up this word, this word specifically comes from a word that we get the word kleptomaniac from. It means he steals because it's in his nature to steal. He steals because he's provoked to steal. It is part of who he is. He is a theft by very, he's a thief by nature. And he's so good at it and he's been doing it for so long that he often does it in a way that we don't even realize that we've had something stolen from us until it's too late. I can remember being in Jerusalem in 2017. I had the, the privilege of going to Israel and we were in Jerusalem and as we were doing our bus tour um, into the Mount of Olives, our tour guide stopped us before we got off the bus. He said, I need everybody to do me a favor. I need you to take your wallet and I need you to put it in your front pocket. And then keep your hand in that pocket as often as, you, as much as you can. And I asked him why and he said because the, the place is just covered up with pickpockets. He said, when you, when you go, he said, somebody will bump into you. You'll be out of all your stuff. You won't even know they took something from you. This is what the enemy does. He's been doing what he does for so long that he takes stuff from us 
oftentimes, un oftentimes undetected before we even have the ability to realize that something's been stolen from us. He's been this way from the beginning. Let me, let me read you a passage out of Genesis chapter 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Indeed, has God said you shall not eat from any tree of the garden? The woman said to the serpent, From the fruit of the trees of the garden we may not eat, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden... God has said, you shall not eat from it or touch it, or you will die. The serpent said to the woman, you surely will not die. And so he's trying to twist the words of God. He's trying to deceive. He's trying to cause her to think that what God actually said may not be something that he actually said. In verse 5, he says, for God knows that in the day you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. If you'll first, the first verse in that set of scripture i just read you it says the serpent was more crafty than any beast of the field if you'll look up the word crafty it literally means subtle and sly which means that he is going to come at you in such a way that it's impossible if you're not paying attention to detect what he's trying to steal from you i can prove this to you in real life not just in scripture this is what he's done from the very beginning there's a verse in Jeremiah 32, 24, and many of you have heard me talk about this before, but it's so important here. The verse reads, the siege ramps are at the gate. And Jeremiah is prophesying about the city being overrun and overtaken. And so when I was a new Christian, I guess I'd been saved about a year and a half, I read that and it provoked me. I didn't know what a siege ramp was, so I went and looked it up and studied it and figured out how they made a siege ramp, and I realized it dawned on me that this is exactly how the enemy steals from us. And let me explain. A siege ramp, back in the day, walls were of building, uh, walls of cities were tall and thick and impenetrable. You could beat against them all day long, and you wouldn't break through them. And so they couldn't just batter into the wall and into the wall and into the wall. The enemy knows that he can't just come at a straightforward assault on you because you'll recognize that for the deception that it is. Instead, he builds a siege ramp, much like they built it back then, where we stand on top of our wall and we're haughty and we're convinced that we are unassailable, that we are undefeatable, that, that we can't be taken down. Look, I belong to God. Do you not know who I am or who my parentage is? And we stand haughtily on top of the wall convinced that God will protect us and he will protect us while we're paying attention. But instead, the enemy comes and he pours a small pile of rocks at the base of my wall. My wall is strong. My wall is thick. It's impossible to break through. And so I look at the enemy down at the bottom of my wall and I laugh. And I think, what's he doing? It's ineffective. It's not going to work. And then they do another one, another pile of dirt. And I still laugh. And then another pile of dirt and I still laugh. Or maybe even it's such a small pile of dirt, I don't even realize that they're doing it. And then another one and then another one until ultimately they have dumped so much dirt at the base of my wall that they built a ramp leading to the top of my wall. 
and where I was standing haughtily and convinced that I was unassailable. Now the enemy, who just one small dump load of dirt at a time, built a ramp. Now all he has to do is walk in to my city and overtake it. This is how the enemy defeats us. I've seen marriages collapse because a guy thought it was okay to have a conversation with his secretary. It's a small a small bucket of dirt. It's not going to hurt anything until it does hurt something, until that small bucket of dirt because it's become several small buckets of dirt. And they maybe move from conversation in the office to coffee in the break room. And then a couple more, and they move from coffee in a break room to dinner or lunch. A couple more, they move to dinner to a couple more, and he tells his wife and calls her and says, I'm not going to make it home tonight. I have to work late. And then ultimately he finds himself, and and this is the question that I hear people ask all the time, how did I end up here? I ended up here because I didn't pay attention to the siege ramp being built in my life. This is how the enemy destroys us. This is how the enemy destroyed Adam and Eve and took from them what was rightfully theirs, which is life eternal and intimacy with God. We have to pay attention because the enemy is a thief, and sadly, he's a good one. Jesus uses the word thief to let us know that the devil is cunning. He comes to steal and kill and destroy. And when he steals, he steals primarily by misleading us. Let me, let me explain what I'm talking about. So if I'm going to do this in context, if we're going to look at this text in context, it says in John 9, or correction, John 10, 9, he says, I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and go in and out of the land and find pasture. So we know that those who point to a different door than Christ, those who mislead others into following or believing in a false god are provoked by Satan. The quickest, most assured way of having the enemy steal from you is to listen to a voice other than the voice of God, other than the voice of godly counsel other than the word of God because all he has to do all the enemy has to do is not to tell you a lie that sounds like a lie he's to tell you a lie that sounds like the truth more people have fallen due to lies that sound like the truth than a lie that you know is a lie and so what does he do he he tries to mislead you into following a different God a, a God of a specific ideology or a God of your own liking or your own choosing or maybe even your own making. The fact of the matter is, who are we listening to? Who are we having people tell us about who God is? And are we listening to ourselves when we've determined to make God, ourselves God? Because those things are destructive. Those things cause the enemy to steal from us. I'm reminded of a story in 2 Samuel 15, 1 through 6. I'm not going to turn there, 
But many of you are familiar. If not, then I would recommend going and reading it. Absalom was the son of David. And in this, these few verses, verses 1 through 6, Absalom goes outside the city gate. He's the son of the king. He's not the king. He goes outside the city gate. And when people come to the king with a problem, they bow down in front of him. He puts his hand on top of him and says, essentially, the king isn't present. What can I do for you? And then he does what's necessary to solve their problem. What he's done is he's allowed himself to stand in the place of the king. And in so doing, try to assume the authority of the king. He's trying to steal the affections of the people away from the true king. This is how the enemy steals from us. He steals our affections through false religion, through false teaching, through false counsel, by telling us lies that sound like truth. Because he doesn't have to convince you to do something crazy. He just has to convince you to do something that leads to something crazy. And in stealing from you, the word of God says that he kills and destroys. He does this by poisoning the hearts of men. John 8, 44 says, You are the father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. Whatever he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of lies. We see from this text that not only does he kill through deception, but by his very nature he is a liar. He has been a liar from the very beginning and will do anything to deceive mankind, thus causing us to be led astray to death. This is his plan. This is the opposite of God's plan for us. God's plan, his original plan, was to bring us eternal life, that we would have eternal life and intimacy with him. It's the reason why God is trying through through Jesus Christ, to restore us back to a place where we were at the beginning. It says that God knows and, and makes a plan so that we, we find at the end what was planned from the beginning, where we had intimacy with God, where we were able to walk with God, where we had eternal life. This whole book describes the redemptive process from fall to salvation back to intimacy with God. But the devil has no truth in him. Why do I spend all this time here? Because I need you to understand that the enemy is real. That he's doing everything he can to kill and steal and destroy us. But Pastor Jim, this is supposed to be an Easter sermon. This is supposed to be uplifting. And I'm getting there. But let me tell you, there's a truth. And that truth is that the enemy is going to do everything he can to steal and kill and destroy. His plan is to steal and kill and destroy. But praise God, Jesus had a different plan. The reason he came, his plan was to give life. In the second part of this verse, he says, I came that they may have life. He came to offer his life for our life. Here comes the good news. Are you ready for it? Because I'll be honest with you, it doesn't matter to me one little bit what the devil has planned. It doesn't matter to me one little bit that the devil is a thief, that he is a liar, that he's been a thief and a liar from the very beginning. 
Because it's for me and my household, we're going to serve the Lord. We're going to stand on the fact that the word of God is true. And that's what I'm encouraging you to do, to recognize where the truth lies and stand on that. Because Christ came to give us life. He gave his own life for our life. He paid a debt that we owed. Romans 6.23 is very clear to say, for the wages of sin, the debt that you owe is death. I'm so glad that this verse doesn't end this way, that this isn't all that it just says. It doesn't say for the wages of sin is death. That's only half of it. It finishes with this, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. It doesn't matter what you owed because when you accept Jesus Christ, he took what you owed upon himself so that you might have eternal life as a free gift. But the, per, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He had to give his life if we were ever to be with him. Why? Because we are all sinners. Listen, I'm just telling you the truth of the gospel message today. The enemy does everything that he can to destroy you, but Jesus Christ came and took the penalty of your sin, and he had to take the penalty of your sin because we are sinners. The word of God is very explicit to say that we are sinners both by nature and by action. That where one sinned, we all sinned. That one being Adam. Where one was righteous, we all become righteous. That one is Christ Jesus. Mm. That's good. But we are all sinners. None of us deserve eternity. 1 Corinthians 6, 9 says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? The unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God. I had no chance of an eternity. You had no chance of an eternity outside of hell had Christ Jesus not come and sacrificed himself on the Good Friday we talked about just a few days ago. Had he not nailed himself to a cross, had he not subjected himself to the brutal beating that he took, being persecuted and mocked and blasphemed, punched, slapped, kicked, the skin ripped off of his bones, nails driven through his hands and through his ankles. I know that we talked about this on Good Friday, but let me tell you, we can never talk about it enough. Jesus Christ did everything that he could to ensure that we, our sins would be paid for. He took the cup of wrath that we deserved. He substituted himself, not just on the cross, but when God poured his wrath out, he assumed it. Because he assumed our sin. He became sin according to the word of God so that we don't have to carry that sin. So he came to give us life. 1 Corinthians 6, 9, I just read it. Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God, but God proved his love for us by sending his son to pay our debt. Colossians 1, 13 and 14 says... For he rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, redemption for the forgiveness of sin. And he accomplished it by substituting himself and appeasing the wrath of God. You know what we don't talk about enough? We don't talk about the work that Jesus Christ put in so that we wouldn't have to accept the wage that we've earned. And that wage is death. He took the cup of wrath that we carried, that we deserved. 
that we still deserve so that we wouldn't have to. This is the life. This is the way that he brought life to us. 1 John 2, 2 says, And he himself was the propitiation, the appeasement for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for those of the whole world. He appeased the wrath and the justice of God on our behalf by dying. But can I tell you, praise God, death was never the reason. Life is the reason. The glory of Easter is that he didn't stay dead. I want to read you a text out of Colossians. Colossians 2, 14 and 15 says this, having canceled out the certificate of debt consisting of decrees against us, this is Jesus, which was hostile to us, and he has taken it out of the way, having nailed it to the cross. So he, this is essentially just saying in more words that he assumed the penalty we deserved and then canceled out all of our debts. Some of you guys are walking around, even here on Easter Sunday, the most hopeful Sunday of the entire year, carrying the guilt and the shame of a sin that you've already asked God to forgive you for. Can I tell you that, according to this verse, those sins have been canceled out. Those decrees are gone. There's nobody that has a right to condemn you. There is no condemnation in Christ Jesus because Christ Jesus assumed that debt and then canceled it. He paid it in full. No one owes that debt anymore. Stop going to God and asking God to forgive a sin that you've already asked God to forgive, guilt is not in the cards for you. But it goes further, he says, when he had disarmed the rulers and the authorities, which is to say the enemy and all of his minions, he made a public display of them, having triumphed over them through him, through Jesus. This, this confused me several years ago. I wasn't quite sure what the word was trying to say, and so I I did some research, and this is, this is what that means. So back in the day in the, in the biblical times, it was common practice if a general or a king overthrew another king. They would take that king, and they would put him in a cage. And they would literally parade the defeated king in that cage through the city streets. Would literally make a public spectacle of them. This is what Jesus Christ did to the enemy, to the rulers and the authorities. He's made a public spectacle of them, showing that they are now powerless because he assumed the cross for us. He have no authority over us because we have the authority of the name of Jesus because we belong to him. When Nineveh was ultimately destroyed, it said that Nineveh, the, in, his, in historical documents, it says that Nineveh would take kings and put them in cages and would set them actually outside the city gates so when you walked in and out of the city you could see the defeated kings some of you guys need to put the defeated king on display and let him know he's gone you're defeated you can't have victory over me anymore because i belong to the one true sovereign king because jesus christ died for me that i might have eternal life jesus christ assumed the authority assumes the authority by destroying the authorities and the rulers and the principalities. And I don't know about you guys, but that's awesome to me. Because he could have, I don't think he would have, but he could have defeated him and just walked away. 
but he defeated him so incredibly, so completely, that he made a public spectacle of him. Mm. The glory of Easter is that we have the hope of eternal life. This eternal life is guaranteed by Christ. John 10, 28 says, And I give eternal life to them, his sheep, those who follow, and they will never perish, and no one can snatch them out of my hand. Because he did what he did, we have the hope of life. He was the first fruits of the resurrection. So our life is eternal. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 20 through 26 reads like this. But now Christ has been raised from the dead the first fruits over those who are asleep. For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all may be made alive. For each in his own order, Christ is the first fruits. After that, those who are in Christ at his coming. Then comes, to the, then comes the end when he hands over the kingdom, of, kingdom to God and Father when he has abolished all rule and all authority and power, for he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy that will be abolished is death. That's a lot of words to say this. Jesus Christ died, was placed in the grave. Three days later, the glory of Easter, the glory of today, is that he's no longer there. That he rose. He's not here. He arose. He's ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of God, making intercession on our behalf. He did all of this as the first fruits, which means that he did all of this to show us that we too shall be resurrected. It's the order of the resurrection. First him, then us. We have the promise of resurrection, not because something that we did, but because of everything that he did, further into that same chapter, 54 through 57, we see the results of that. We see that we have life and victory because of that. He said, excuse me, 54 through 57 says, when this perishable, this is the perishable, will have put on the imperishable, that which won't perish, and the mortal will have put on immortality, then will come about the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O oh, death, where is your victory? O oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Because Jesus Christ rose from the dead, we have the ability to say, Death is swallowed up in victory. Death, where is your sting? Death has no sting for the believer. This brings me such comfort that not only at some point when I die, physically, I will put on the imperishable. And in putting on the imperishable, I will, I will get to not just be with Jesus, which is amazing, but I, I'll get to see the people that went before me that also put on the imperishable that those who died in Christ are as alive today as they've ever been. 
if you died today and you belong to Christ, 10 seconds from then, you'll be as, as alive as you've ever been. This is the glory of Easter. This is the glory of the resurrection. The death has no sting. Christ did it to prove to us that he will do it for us. And in it, we should walk victorious. Which is the reason why he came. Not just to give life, but according to the last part of this verse, to give life abundantly. The word abundant means to overflowing more than possibly expected life beyond comprehension. I can't begin to tell you how frustrated I get when I hear people misuse this verse, specifically, really any verse, but specifically this one. Because they say, well, God wants you to have, and I, and I can hear it now, I can hear the preachers now, the false teachers right now saying, if you'll just claim it, you can have it. Let me tell you, life abundantly is not a blab it and grab it ideology. It's not, the, it's not, a, it's not a speak it into existence prosperity gospel. It's a, it's a truth, but it's not that. There's far too much within Scripture that declares that even the faithful will see trials and tribulations. I can't think personally of a, of a more spiritual person than Paul. If anybody had the right, the ability to name it and claim it, to grab it, to live this abundant prosperity gospel, it would have been Paul. But let me tell you what Paul himself had to say in 2 Corinthians eleven twenty three through 27. Are they servants of Christ? I speak as if insane. I more so. In far more labors. In far more imprisonments. Beaten times without number. Often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the cities, dangers in the wilderness, dangers in the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there is the daily pressure of my on me of concern for all the churches, who is weak without being weak, who is led into sin without my intense concern. Let me tell you, if there's ever been a person that deserves the prosperity, abundant life, it's Paul, but I've just read to you, he didn't have that. He was in danger at every turn. He suffered at every turn. He wrote most of his letters in prison. This man understood that that's not what God is talking about. It's not what the scripture is talking about. And I couldn't imagine the scathing letter that the Paul would write to the American church today. Although I have to admit, I'd rather get a letter of rebuke than an eternity of judgment. But I want to talk to you. Jesus died to, gave us, to give us life and life abundantly, but let's, let's see it 
through the lens, what, see abundance through the lens of what Scripture actually says. An abundant life is a life of peace because Jesus is sacrificed. We know that our peace is perfect because Jesus removed the enmity, the, the dysfunction, the warfare between us and God. Colossians 1.20 says, And through him to reconcile all things to himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. Through him I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and our peace comes from him, according to 2.14, for he himself is our peace. That's the abundant life. Knowing that Jesus brought peace between us and God, us and the almighty God, Abundant life is a life of joy. Joy in the fact that we belong to Him. It's this belonging that allows us to say, as Paul wrote to the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I say rejoice. But why do we rejoice? Why do we have the right to rejoice? Because the second half of that verse says, because the Lord is near. Don't, get, don't let the Scriptures get past you. Don't let the small words get past you. Don't say, okay, I've heard that before, I get it. I want you to understand that life abundantly is a life of peace and a life of joy. That because you belong to God through Christ Jesus, we know that God is near, that he watches over us, that he keeps us, the all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God is standing literally right here, right now. How can I not find peace in a storm when I know the person that controlled, the God that controls the storm is standing right here. How can I not have peace in a time of pestilence when I know the destroyer of pestilence is standing right here? How can I have anything but peace in my life in hunger and conflict and stress when I know that the God that provides for me, that provides for you, is standing right here? We serve a God that brings peace and joy. But it's also a life of purpose. If God's going to give us peace and joy, he expects something from us. What is man's greatest purpose? I would submit to you that it's to know God and bring him glory. Which means pursue relationship and bear fruit. John 15, 8 says, My Father is glorified by this, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Why would we not be able to fulfill our purpose when God has given us everything in Christ Jesus to allow us to fulfill our purpose? But you know what? The greatest facet of a life abundant is a life of hope. Because we do have peace. We do have joy. God has given us purpose. But he has given us eternal life. Why did Jesus come? Jesus came to bring us life. And to bring us life abundantly. I want to read a text out of 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 through 18. 
But do we not want, but we do not want you to be uninformed, brethren, about those who are asleep, so that you will not grieve as do the rest who have no hope. We aren't to grieve like those with no hope. For if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so, God will bring with him those who have also fallen asleep in Jesus. For this way we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we, are, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we, who are alive and remain, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and we shall always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. The magnificence of Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, for the people that don't like the word Easter, is that because of the work that Jesus did, because he was the first fruits of the resurrection, we have the promise, according to the text that I've just read you, that we will spend eternity with him. First the dead will rise, and then we will rise to meet him. And we will spend all of eternity in his presence. I praise God that he loved me enough while I was still a sinner, he sent his son Christ Jesus to die for me and then proved to me through his own resurrection that I too might ultimately spend eternity with him. I'm not sure where you're at with God today. I'm not sure if you've, if you've even believed a word that I've told you, but I pray that you have. My prayer from the beginning is that the Holy Spirit provoke you to make a decision, and that decision is what, what am I going to do with the information I've been given? What am I going to do with Jesus? What am I going to do with his sacrifice? What am I going to do with the fact that there's an eternity coming and that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? What am I going to do with that? My hope is that your answer is I will accept Jesus Christ as my Lord and Savior. Or if I've allowed myself to drift away, my hope is that your answer will be that, that I'm going to call again on the name of the Lord. I'm going to fan into flame that gift that's been given to me by the laying on of hands. I'm going to, I'm going to pray that God forgive me for my sin, that I, that I walk in wholeness and righteousness because he died that I might be able to. And so if that's you, if you don't know God or if you've allowed yourself to slip away, I want to pray a prayer with you today. And that prayer doesn't have to sound exactly like my prayer. I'm not going to say repeat after me because quite honestly, if you're just praying it to say words, it's not going to do you any good. You have to believe it in faith. So I want you to use your own words with my prayer as a model. Let's pray. Father God, in Jesus' name, we love you. We thank you, Heavenly Father, God, that you, that you did send your Son, Jesus Christ, to die for us while we were still sinners. That he came here 
to destroy the works of the enemy, to give us life, and to give us that life abundantly. Father God, if there's anybody within the sound of my voice that doesn't know who you are but wants to, they're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit. God, I pray this prayer. Father, forgive me where I have sinned. I recognize that I'm a sinner, both by birth and by action. But God, today I make a decision for Jesus. I ask you to forgive me of my sin. I ask that you give me the power of your Holy Spirit to walk away from that sin. But God, not only to walk away from that sin, but to turn towards your son Jesus. And I ask that by that same Spirit, God, that you give me the ability to walk every day just a little more Christ-like. God, where I fall, I ask that you pick me up, that you strengthen me, that you encourage me, and I know that you will. God, I declare in faith that Jesus Christ is Lord, meaning that I'm going to do what he tells me to according to his Spirit and according to his Word. And I believe that you raised him from the dead, knowing that because he was raised from the dead, I won't see death either. So God, with this declaration of faith, I thank you that your answer is yes when we ask for forgiveness. And not only that you forgive us, that you impute righteousness to us, that you've imputed righteousness to me. We praise you, we worship you, we thank you for the resurrection as a proof that we will spend eternity with you. We thank you for who you are and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If that was you, on your screen somewhere, there should be a, a button that has a hand on it. If you'll press that, it'll shoot you to a private chat room with one of our pastors or one of our staff leaders. They would love to have a conversation with you. Or if that wasn't you, but you have questions, do the same. We would love to have a conversation with you. We pray to God that you have a blessed day a blessed Easter, and that you have life and have it abundantly. In Jesus' name. Love you guys. Hope you have a good week.